0: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Most Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Our Siri has a collection of stories and recipes from Syrian refugees. Co-author Dina Massawi recounts stories of food, love, and death from a country that has turned into a war zone.
2: The one thing that I think people miss the most is food. You crave that thing that, that reminds you of home.
1: Before we get to my conversation with Massawi, it's reporter Leila Schlack who's explored the history of the Settlement Cookbook, all 34 editions and 2 million copies. Layla, how are you?
3: I'm good, thanks.
1: So the Settlement Cookbook, when was it published? Why was it published? Uh, Let's just start with the very beginnings here.
3: Sure. So the first Settlement Cookbook was published in 1901. And it was, you know, all over the country, there were things called settlement houses, which were to help immigrant women from different places kind of integrate into their new life in the U.S. And cooking was a big part of it because, you know, you had these people coming from places where they had different ingredients. Um, So the settlement cookbook was from the settlement house in Milwaukee, which was run by an affluent German Jewish woman. But the people coming to it were mostly Russian Jewish immigrants. So there were recipes to essentially kind of recreate Russian Jewish foods and German Jewish foods in a way that was a little bit more American. But it also had a lot of tips on housekeeping. You know, it was all about how to have a happy marriage and be a good mother. And I think of it as kind of like Goop or Martha Stewart, where it's really like it was a lifestyle publication. It was this is how you be a good, happy, healthy American.
1: So so they would say things like uh, use a tablecloth and your, your life will be immeasurably better, right?
3: Exactly. Yeah, I would say things like, right, even if you can't afford a nice tablecloth, a cheap tablecloth is better than no tablecloth because it shows that you've put time and thought into this dinner that you're about to have.
1: So there were a lot of women in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who were putting out these books. You know, Fanny Farmer, Mrs. Beaton, Book of Household Management. So this was not unique. There were lots of other books like this that that were not just cookbooks, right? Right. I I think... Part of this was to make the people using the book become American, and so I gather most of the recipes were actually there to have them adapt to America and become part of the melting pot, right?
3: Yeah, a lot of the recipes, right, were not old world, but they were still kind of familiar Not all of them. Some of them were very American. Like, there are chocolate chip cookies in there, you know. But what's interesting to me about Settlement specifically is that it's become so emblematic of what Jewish-American cooking is.
1: I I know the Solomon cookbook, even when I was a kid, you know, if you go to someone's house, you'd often see that yellow book on the Mm -hmm. shelf, uh, even in the 1940s and 50s. It lasted quite a long time. So how did the book change over time to adapt to a very different America?
3: So it changed a bunch of times, and one of the biggest ways is that it became more recipes and less housekeeping tips. And it really, they just kind of picked up on what are people eating now. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see that each subsequent edition really sort of reflects the food trends of the time. So for instance, the 1991 edition has things like Pad Thai in it. And also, you know, the little pull out about using margarine instead of butter, because in the 90s, that's what everyone thought was the right thing to do. So really a lot of thought and research went into each edition to to look into what people needed to know now.
1: And have you cooked out of this book a lot?
3: Um, it's one of the books I learned to cook out of, and, and that was an old edition. I think it was like the 1922 edition was the one <laughs> I learned that we had in my house growing up. Um, and it still has that feeling of being A time capsule.
1: You know, there's one aspect of this we've not really talked about. There was a moral undertone to all of this. Yes. And the notion that if people took care of their homes in the proper manner, they would also take care of their community. So that's an interesting notion that how you live your life in the house has implications for the community at large. Do you think that is something we should not have lost, that connection between the home and the community, and or, or has it existed or gone on in some other
3: guise? Again, I think we're seeing it a lot with food. Um, you know, people are looking to their local farms to get eggs and they're doing CSAs. So I think there is room for it. I think it's a kind of a tricky balance where we've definitely moved away from assigning morality to how you keep your home. And I think that's a good thing. But at the same time, you know, we're we're very much in a consumer culture where the products you consume do affect your community and the earth at large. And that's something to be mindful of.
1: Well, the the obvious question is, do you follow any of those, <laughs> that advice about household management?
3: Not specifics, no, no. But I do take to heart that idea that doing small things to make your home a more pleasant place has a ripple effect. And then that can kind of make you a happier, saner, more productive person.
1: And and, and one with higher moral value, one would hope.
3: Yes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Leila, thank you so much. I do have a copy of Settlement, but, you know, I'm going to go back and look at it uh, because it's probably worth a second look.
3: Thank you. It was nice talking to you.
1: That was Layla Schlack, senior editor of The Wine Enthusiast. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Just subscribe and get all our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moulton and I will be taking your calls. Sarah Moulton is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah, you ready for a new batch of questions?
4: I am so ready.
1: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, this is Rob from Massachusetts. How can we help you? I recently used fennel for the first time, Mm -hmm. believe it or not, in a potato dish, and I want to use it again in other ways. What are some dishes you can recommend that feature fennel that's beyond like a fennel salad?
1: Just roasting it is nice. You can also roast it with a roast of some kind is nice. We have a great recipe for a fennel and white bean soup. We also did a um, porchetta, which obviously has a lot of fennel seasoning in it, in a seasoning. And we roasted fennel along with the pork, which was terrific. And that goes really well. I think pork and fennel just go well. White beans and fennel go well. Or just roast it and serve it, you know, as a vegetable.
4: This restaurant I worked at, the last one I worked at, La Tulipe, we had this wonderful chicken dish where you would slice the fennels, you know, so it stayed together at the core. So you'd have like quarter inch thick slices and we'd brown them in a skillet and then we'd brown the chicken pieces. So we'd give them the pre-caramelization so they really were nicely browned. And then we would uh, do the same with whole garlic cloves. And then we would finish the whole thing in the oven, take it out, you know, park the chicken in the fennel, take the garlic, add some broth, make a garlic milkshake and wow so sautéing the fennel too is really nice I mean, I agree with Chris, I love roasting but sautéing's good too So h- how do you cook fennel?
5: It was a recipe I found in Bon Appetit it was like a potatoes au gratin dish mm-hmm. you layered the potatoes with the very thinly sliced fennel and added rosemary and a bunch of well, that sounds good. healthy cheese yeah. <laughs> No, I'm kidding um, I do have a question though My grocery store sells it labeled as anise fennel. Does that have a stronger licorice taste than a fennel bulb that's not labeled that way?
1: Well, it's a different thing entirely. Does it look like a large fennel bulb or looks like something else?
5: It looks like a large fennel bulb.
4: It's just a misnomer. Uh, I I think it's just a misnomer. It's like the whole problem with yams and sweet potatoes. Yeah.
5: Ah, okay, great. Chris, you talked about roasting the fennel did you put oil on it or? Yeah, yeah,
4: I'd slice
1: it through the core so it doesn't fall apart. Right. Like quarter it maybe, or sixth, and then uh, put a little oil on it, salt and pepper in a bowl. You could put sitar on it or some other spice blend that you like. Cumin would work well, for example, coriander, and just put that in a you know, a large roasting pan into a hot oven. You might want to cover it for the first 15 minutes and then take the cover off and then finish roasting. Probably take, what, 45, 50 minutes, something like that total, you know, 450 oven, 425
5: oven. Um, And one last question, if you'll indulge me. The fronds, are they good in, like, stock or anything else?
4: Treat it like you would dill or another fresh herb.
6: Yeah.
5: All right. Well, these are all great ideas. Thank you, Chris.
6: Yeah,
4: thanks for calling. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line?
6: This is Sandy Crystal.
4: Hi, where are you calling from? In New Hampshire. So how can we help you today?
6: Well, we've been making waffles uh, at home for many years. Usually we use milk as the liquid, but now we switch to almond milk. And the problem is when we use almond milk, the waffles don't turn a golden brown. They look very unappetizing, and they're not crisp. Um, the original recipe we use does call for some sugar in it, but I don't know what else to potentially change to um, make them brown again.
1: So the almond milk's really working out well for you in the (laughs) waffle department. (laughs) They look awful. They don't taste as good. They're
6: not crisp.
1: One thing you might try, and we did this uh, with a chocolate chip cookie recipe, is we toasted the flour in a skillet for four or five minutes over like medium heat and stirring it frequently. We also add a little bit of rye flour uh, in place of some of the all-purpose, so maybe
4: why th- rye flour because it's so dark.
1: It's dark and has a lot of flavor. So three parts all-purpose to one part rye. Toast it in a skillet for a few minutes. The other thing you could do is grind up some nuts like pecans, you know, like a quarter cup, and add that meal, that nut meal, to the mixture, which will add color and also flavor. And make sure you yeah you add the sugar because the sugar is what's going to help it brown.
4: What kind of sugar do you add?
6: Oh, well, we usually just use, actually, I cook with beet sugar. But we actually, when we make our waffles, uh, most of the time we use some buckwheat flour. Mm-hmm. So they're not pale to begin with, but they're, I think, still just not crisp.
4: Can I just finish on the, in the sugar department for a second in terms of the color issue? So if you use uh-huh. brown sugar or molasses or grade B maple syrup, that might give you more color, too. And I had another thought. Do you use butter in the recipe? Yes. Brown the butter. Well, that's a good idea. In terms of the crispness, sugar will certainly help it to crisp.
1: If you keep baking these, they don't get dark? They just never darken?
6: Yeah, I did try to, um, with our um, waffle iron, I did try to turn them up to make it hotter. Maybe it made an incremental difference, but not very much.
1: So can you leave just leave them in longer? Have you tried that? That's a silly question, but...
6: I guess I've never tried to leave them long enough that I kind of went, whoops, didn't work. It was too long. So I guess I could try that longer.
1: I just cook them longer. You can toast the flour, which is kind of a pain. I just make sure you have enough sugar in there and you cook it longer. Okay. You know, that that would be the obvious first step.
4: But if not, maybe you go with all the other suggestions we've given you. Okay. And let us know how it goes.
6: I sure will. All right. Great. Thanks. Sure. Thank you.
4: This is Milk
1: Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to stump us or just get your question answered, give us a ring anytime. 855 426 9843. One more time. 855 426 9843. Or send us an email at questions at Milk Street
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is
6: Davida from Boston. Oh, hi,
4: Davida. How can we help you?
6: Well, I have a question about preheating the oven when baking because what i notice is it generally says at the very beginning of a recipe to preheat the oven right and then there's you know a number of steps in the recipe before i need to put the batter into the oven and meanwhile the oven is long since preheated and i just wonder is there any advantage in long preheating yes did ovens used to take longer to preheat or?
1: well first of all i always wonder why recipes say preheat just say heat yeah. uh Yes, it takes a good 20 minutes or 25 minutes for an oven to heat up. And also, there's lots of different kinds of heat. There's convection heat, you know, in the air. There's radiant heat. That is, the walls of the oven will radiate heat. And so, if you really give it time to thoroughly heat, you'll get a more consistent heat in the oven. And also, some ovens, even when they say they're up to speed, they're not. You know, if you set it for 350 and the little bell goes off or whatever... Sometimes it's really not up to 350 yet. So a long heating cycle before you use it just ensures, A, it'll be really up to temperature, and B, you'll have more consistent results.
4: Yeah, also with baking, you just don't want to risk it because the oven temperature is absolutely key for whatever item you're baking to come out the right way. You know, other things, hey, roasting vegetables, who cares? You know, it's just not as important, but baking, it's really important.
1: Except her oven, like your oven and my oven, No matter what you set the dial to, it's not that temperature.
4: Yeah, that's true.
1: I mean, ovens are not very precise. You just have
4: to get to know your oven. But one thing I want to comment on, which I think is really uh, smart, is it drives me crazy with recipes, except for Asian recipes, where everything has to be prepped before you start. There's no need to prep all your ingredients before you start a recipe. You should read it from start to finish and then figure out what you can do while that pot of water is coming to a boil. You know, instead of dicing the onion and the garlic and chopping the tomato, you can do that while the water's coming to a boil. So I think you're smart to take advantage of that waiting time to do the prep.
1: So, yes, you do want to preheat. We uh, agree about that one, yeah. But also make sure your oven is actually at the right temperature. Go out and get a good oven thermometer or check it against a couple recipes because it'll inevitably be either hotter or colder. Yeah, right.
6: It just made me wonder if I was just wasting energy by the longer preheat, but it sounds like not at all. No,
1: No, because most of the energy is getting it up to temperature, and once it's there, it's not going to take much to keep it there. Anyway, preheat your oven.
6: Well, thanks very much. Thanks for calling. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Gina Massawi about what it means to cook, eat, and live in a war zone. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash
0: post. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day.
1: This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. While working on a theater project with Syrian refugees, British-Iraqi actress Dina Massawi and Syrian TV producer Itab Azam began collecting recipes and stories from the people they met, resulting in the cookbook Our Syria, Recipes from Home. The result was actually more than a cookbook. It's a chronicle of life in a war zone where a simple roast chicken is worth risking death. Dina, how are you?
2: I'm fine, thanks. How are you?
1: Good. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. Could you just describe briefly how this book got started?
2: Yeah. So Itab and I um, worked for a few months in Beirut and we worked with a a large group of um, Syrian women and we trained them to become performers and we, we did the show in Beirut. And During the process of making the theatre project, the women would constantly invite us to lunch in the camps because they're so hospitable and they kept, you know, they they were so proud of their food and their cuisine and they wanted to invite us. So, quite often, we would spend afternoons and evenings going over and eating with them and sharing stories and sharing recipes. And that's how the idea came about. Because Itab and I came back to London and we thought, how do you know they're so fantastic? These stories and The recipes, how do we share them? And then we came up with the idea of the cookbook.
1: So something interesting about Syria, and I read Itab's preface to the book, she talks about growing up essentially behind the Iron Curtain under Assad. And and she Mm -hmm. says that as a result, the consumer revolution missed her, right, and her family. And she said, Mm -hmm. uh, everything is cooked fresh. Uh, The Syrians have always made their own cheese and yogurt, grow their own olives for olive oil and roses for rose water. So despite the horrific conditions, the, the food supply and the way people cook is actually superior in many ways to the more consumer world that we live in today. Is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. That's kind of what, what she grew up with and, and very similar to what I grew up with in Iraq. There were no sort of ready-made Foods and products, um, and if there were, they were very, very expensive, so it was always about fresh ingredients. even though that was more time consuming, you know people would spend time going out and picking the the fruits or the vegetables or the herbs and making a huge sort of event of it. There's one dish that's um, charred, and the introduction is that a lot of women in the village around where Itab grew up would go out into the the fields and the hills and they would pick chard and other herbs and kind of it for them it was an excuse to get away from home and their husbands and, and kind of just be the women together and gossiping and singing and and they and it it was kind of an enjoyable event you know
1: you mentioned in the book there's a horror of wasting food in mm-hmm. fact in a stuffed zucchini dish the part you scoop out before you stuff it is saved and used uh-huh so, could you just talk about that—the the notion that nothing's thrown out?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you you can't waste food because the food takes so long to source that there's this kind of element of preciousness to it. So, there's a dish that we call kusamashi, where you stuff the courgettes. So you, you scoop out the inside and you stuff it with mincemeat, um, and you cook it in a in a tomato sauce but then the insides you would fry up with some garlic and some mint and some olive oil and just eat that with some flatbread Um, and that that might be placed on the table while you're having the rest of your meal or it could be as a a, you know as a little snack but nothing is ever wasted. A lot of um, Syrian food is labor intensive so the women would all gather together and cook together and also I think when you are eating in in Syrian culture, you you eat as a family or even the neighbours would come round and there's always quite a lot of people eating together. So you would always make a huge amount, which means obviously it takes longer to prepare. And so there's that sort of notion of everything's really precious and it takes so long to make that, you know, we've got to make the most of it.
1: Let's talk about spices, something that mm-hmm. here in America we know nothing about other than cinnamon and nutmeg and salt and pepper. Um, so Aleppo pepper, it's it's red. It has a slightly fruity taste to it. Is there, and it's obviously hard to get Aleppo pepper from Aleppo anymore. What's, what's a really good Aleppo pepper supposed to taste like?
2: Um, well, there are three types of leftover pepper. So you can get it sweet, you can get it medium hot, and you can get it quite hot. And I guess it it, it does have this kind of rich, fruity taste to it, depending on the, the, the heat intensity, of course. If you get the hot one, it's it's actually really, really hot. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it's got that sort of rich, fruity, fiery taste to it, if you were to just dip your finger in and, and taste it.
1: Uh, sumac, which is... I guess, at one time, sort of a, a substitute for lemon. It's it's very bright, but also sour. It's dark red. Um, we we actually went to the West Bank, and we were surprised because they were using tablespoons of it. I mean, here in America, you use a quarter teaspoon or half a teaspoon of any spice, but never <laughs> tablespoons. And it was absolutely delicious. So could you just talk about that in terms of the amount of spice that's sometimes used?
2: Yeah, I think they're definitely not scared of spices in Syria. They're not scared of garlic or spices or anything like that. You know, everything is sort of really loaded with it. And quite often, I think that samarg is one of the vital ingredients of a dish, you know, which is why they put so much of it in.
1: Smoked rice. Now, I've seen this technique actually in Somalia. They do it too. But could you explain how that works? I thought that was really interesting.
2: Yeah so I think this dish is traditionally from the Yemen and I think they used to um, smoke the rice in the ground but um, I guess now the way that they make it in Syria is um, a much simpler and quicker way and they fry some spices so maybe some cardamom, some cinnamon, some cloves, some bay leaves and then you cook the rice and then at the same time, you're heating some charcoal and you take a small bowl of oil and you make a hole in the rice and you put the bowl of oil in the middle of the rice. And then when the charcoal is piping, piping hot, you dip it into the oil in the bowl and you quickly put the cover back on. And it mm. just smokes the rice like that. And it's absolutely delicious. The first time I tried it, I, I couldn't believe it.
1: Sounds great. Um, let's go back to when you were working on the project in Beirut with the Syrian refugees. Tell me about their lives and what it was like before they left.
2: Well I mean I guess b- before the trouble started you know they lived happy lives they they worked they were all together in in neighborhoods and everybody knew each other and then I think when the trouble started and they started leaving the country it was kind of suddenly they were all dispersed and and um, no longer a community and you know The women that we worked with, the only thing they kept saying is, we want to go back to Syria, we're desperate to go back. We just want to smell Syria's earth and taste Syria's water. And a lot of the women who were living in the refugee camps in Beirut, they didn't have fresh water. The water that they have was salty because it was seawater in the camps. Mm. So, you know, they have to wash their hair, they have to shower in salty water. And when they're cooking as well, they would use the tap water, which was salty, to rinse the vegetables and the herbs. But then they would have to use bottled water to rinse them again. So it's the tiny little things that, you know, I think we take for granted and that maybe they took for granted when they lived in Syria before that they don't have anymore and that they really, really miss.
1: And as you said, the Syrian culture, the Middle East culture in general, is is very family-centric. And as you said, people, when they have a meal... You have extended family around and neighbors, and that's so central to their culture.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a huge part of their culture. And any Middle Easterners, you know, it's all about family. But in the camps that we were in, they would invite all the neighbors around and, you know, cook together and prepare the food together and eat together. And it's, it's kind of open doors policy, which I thought was really beautiful.
1: So what would be the recipe you'd pick out of this book and say, you know what, if you don't know anything about Syrian cooking and culture, here's a recipe you can make at home, you know, on a Tuesday night. It's not that hard, but it really exemplifies the beauty and the flavors of Syria. What what would that recipe be?
2: Hmm. I think um, cherry kebab is a very sort of typical Aleppan dish. Aleppo was on the Silk Route, so it's got a lot of influences from migrants um, and from Armenians who are living in, in in Aleppo. And I think this is traditionally Armenian, and now is Aleppo, and um, and people absolutely love it. Partly because it's quite unusual, um, but also because it's very traditionally Aleppo, and it's it's kebab. So so they it's called kebab, but actually they're like small um, lamb meatballs with herbs and spices cooked um, with cherries and pomegranate molasses and reduce it down so it's like a really delicious thick cherry sauce and Mm. you eat it with the lamb and serve it with um, flatbread.
1: Sold. Great answer. Mm. (laughs) Uh, So what is it you take with you, I guess my question is, whether it's Syria or it's Baghdad, when you leave and go to London, for example, or some other place, what stays with you?
2: Well, I think that for anybody, when they leave their home country, the one thing that I think people miss the most is food. So whether you're a British person and you love, you know, fish and chips or beans on toast and you go away, you you, you crave that thing that that reminds you of home, partly because it's comforting and it's what you know and what you've grown up with. So I really believe that food is something that you take with you and it's something that helps you kind of cling on to home and your country and so many people that that I've met say that oh you know I, I never really liked cooking and I, I didn't really I wasn't really into food or cooking but when I moved here I started ringing my mum and saying oh what's your recipe for that and, and 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 suddenly I got into cooking and I got into food and now I love it so I think that food is a is a big kind of thing that people take with them regardless of where they're from and where they're going.
1: And and do you think people actually are just products of where they grew up? Or if you cook your food for someone who grew up on English food, do they go, wow, that's I love that food too? Or, or, or people just have their tastes and they don't change?
2: I think people can absolutely change their tastes and their palates um, with food. And I've seen that work both ways. So people in the Middle East sometimes cook macaroni cheese, which isn't traditionally Arabic, but you know, they they've learned it and they love it and now it's become almost a traditional dish. And the same in England where you can buy Zatar and some mark and seven spices in any supermarket, right. which a few years ago you couldn't. You had to go to That's special Arabic true. supermarkets. And people are using them in everyday cooking you know they go oh i'm gonna have some fried eggs oh i'll put some zatar on top of it
1: i've learned zatar goes on everything a friend of mine says the t-shirt should be it's the zatar stupid you put zatar chicken (laughs) on fish on on your eggs
2: uh." yeah it's really great and and it's really great with just um if you have a bowl of olive oil and zatar in it and you just dip bread into it it's so good
1: uh through this whole process and these interviews and the time you spent uh with the refugees is there just one moment that stands out for you that uh, really was the the most memorable
2: I think for me it was it was a story that um, one of the women told us and the story is that we met Ahlam and she lived in Damascus and She went to visit her uncle and suddenly their area was under siege and and they couldn't go back to their home and she said but we've left a chicken in the fridge Mm. and they said well you're just gonna have to forget it and she's like what are you crazy there's a whole family that need feeding I'm gonna go and get that chicken Mm. and she had a huge argument with her husband and she got her brother-in-law to drive her back to the neighborhood that she Mm. came from and you know there was fire and bombs and and mortar attacks and she was hiding under verandas and she got to her um, apartment and she ran upstairs. She opened the fridge door and the the chicken was there in its pan and she said, I didn't have time to put it into a Tupperware or a bag or anything like that so I just picked up the pan and ran out. I didn't even close the door behind me. And she said, and I was hiding under a veranda while I heard um, a rocket explode and she said, and I just thought to myself there and then I thought... If I die now, they'll say Ahlam died for that chicken. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she ran back to the car. They, they went back to her uncle's house. She cooked some free care. And that chicken and free care fed four families. Hmm. And I think that just exemplifies the love of Syrian food, but also their defiance, you know. And that, for me, was my favorite story that's come out of the whole project. That's
1: a great story. Mm. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much.
1: That was Dina Massawi, co-author of Our Syria. You know, a friend of mine in Vermont was a young mother in Croatia during the war in the early 1990s. She and her husband lived with a threat of snipers, food was scarce, and they were quite poor, living from hand to mouth. They then came to America. Her husband found the job as a dishwasher, and today he's a chef and they have two... Gorgeous daughters. She told me recently, I'm never going to be rich, but I'm happy. You know, war is a terrible thing, but sometimes life is beautiful. Right now, we head into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you?
7: I'm fine, thanks. How are you?
1: You know, I was visiting with Jose Andres in Washington six months ago, and he was opening a bunch of new restaurants, and he specializes in putting two different cultures together. But it turns out that the cultures he puts together actually historically have a reason to be together. And one of them is Peru and China. And there's a lot of Chinese immigrants in Peru, and they actually come up with this cuisine. And one of the recipes, the one we're talking about today, is Lomo Saltado. So what is that?
7: So Lomo Saltado is sort of fusion cooking, although we've kind of got to think of fusion as a dirty word. But this is fusion cooking at its best. It is a very simple steak stir fry. The lomo actually refers to tenderloin, but home cooks in Peru use all kinds of cuts of beef. The sort of constants in this recipe is the beef is always sliced very thinly, and it's always marinated in a quick soy sauce marinade. So it's a kind of weeknight meal with a ton of flavor. For our variation, we decided to use sirloin. It's a little bit less expensive than tenderloin, and it soaks up that marinade really well. Our marinade is very strong. It's just cumin and soy sauce, so it only takes about 10 minutes to really soak up that flavor. And then we're going to cook it over high heat. But before we do that, we want to make sure that we pat the steak dry so that you get that nice crust. And then this is one of those recipes, Chris, you want to do your steak in two batches. The recipe will come together very quickly, but if you try to consolidate and put in all the meat at once, it's just going to steam. So once your steak is really browned, two to three minutes per side, you transfer it to a plate.
1: Now, what else goes in? Does that just beef? if there's onions other there tomatoes? I think there are tomatoes, that's too, right? That's right,
7: Chris. So then we're going to add some onions and let them soften just about two minutes. Then we're going to deglaze the pan with some vinegar and soy sauce to give it a very nice kind of acidic bite. We add garlic and jalapeno. Traditionally, there would be an Aji chili in here, but that's obviously not easy to find in our supermarkets. So the jalapeno and garlic work great. And then at the very end, we're going to stir in those tomatoes for a nice kind of brightness.
1: So I have one last question, of course, which is, what does Lomo Saltado actually mean?
7: So funny enough, Chris, it means stir-fried tenderloin. And of course, we chose to not use tenderloin, and we're not stir-frying it. That being said, Uh we were able to keep those same great flavors in a way that's really easy and approachable for us all after work on a Tuesday.
1: Catherine, thank you. We have onions, steak, and tomatoes in a non-stir-fried stir-fry. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take a few more calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready and willing?
4: I am looking forward to it.
1: Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling?
4: Hi, this is Amanda uh, from Phoenix, Arizona.
1: How are you?
3: I'm well, thank you. How are you, Chris?
1: We're good. Sarah? I'm good. Ask us anything you like.
3: Sure. So I have a question regarding baking cakes.
6: I love doing layer cakes. I love baking in general. I've always used bread flour for pretty much everything. And I want to know if that was okay. It seems to be working for me. I'm not
3: sure if it's the climate here in Arizona. But yeah, that's my question.
1: I'm going to have a really stupid answer, (laughs) which is I use (laughs) cake flour for cakes, uh, which is lower protein, which gives you a softer texture. Uh-huh. But I know, for example, when making American white breads, you can use all-purpose flour sometimes, and that works fine. So are you making a classic yellow cake or white cake? What kind of cake?
6: Really,
3: with the exception of a sponge cake, right. I use bread flour for everything. I mean, pie crust, cookies.
1: And they turn out the same as if you would use— She doesn't use, know. She's well, have, never you tried. Ever, have you ever used all-purpose or cake flour?
6: I have used all-purpose. It actually seems drier to me and more crumbly.
1: Well, there are two things. One is cakes have a lot of fat in them. So unlike breads (laughs) that don't, my guess is the protein content of the flour is ameliorated to a large extent by the amount of fat in it. So it might not make such a big difference in a cake, for example. And secondly, bread flour has more gluten in it. That is, you mix it with a liquid, gluten forms, which in breads means you get a lighter, airier product. So in a cake, it's possible with all that fat, I guess... It's not it's, a problem. It's conceivable you might get a slightly airier cake. It's possible. It doesn't actually make that much sense It doesn't to me.
4: really make any sense.
1: Well, in breads, it, it does. Oh, I yeah. think the answer is if you did all-purpose on one cake and did bread flour on the other, you wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily know the difference. The only difference is the amount of liquid you would need because bread flour and all-purpose requires slightly different amounts. But my guess is the fat's going to make it very fix it. close
4: fix it yeah you know here's the thing though you know like anything else if you like the way your cakes come out keep on using bread flour why should we argue why should anybody influence yeah. you you do what makes you happy i agree i agree
1: if you like it fine but you should if you ever have a chance actually you know what we should do this yeah put that on the list uh, a standard yellow cake we'll try
4: with bread flour all purpose and cake Yeah. see the difference okay I think that's really good and then we'll report back
6: Right. <laughs> sounds good. I feel like a total rebel because I'm using bread flour for, you know, recipes that call for all-purpose or cake flour.
1: What's the brand of bread flour you're using?
6: King Arthur Flours.
1: That would yeah. be a fairly high protein then.
4: Yeah, yeah. it would. It would. Um, and the other thing is, are you weighing or measuring?
2: I'm measuring.
4: Yeah. I mean, it would be great if you could switch over to grams to grams. weigh it because okay. it's much more consistent. That sounds great.
1: We'll, we'll figure it out and uh, report on our success or failure on the show. Yes. Well,
6: thank you so much. Yeah, thank I you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, take okay. care.
1: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Allison Farisi
3: from Philadelphia. I had a question about onion and garlic powders. There's a lot of recipes that call for onion or garlic or both. And I'm just not sure why you would use the powder over fresh onion or garlic. Is it convenience or is there some magical attribute that the
4: powdered version has?
1: Well, you're talking to someone who grew up with Laurie's seasoned salt... <laughs> I was, like, sure. an important part of my I diet. I did, too.
4: Isn't that interesting? Oh, I used to love my that stuff. My mom used it for everything.
1: Yeah, my mom had no other spices.
4: I mean, I would guess it's because it doesn't burn as quickly as onions and garlic, so you can put it into a spice rub and stuff.
1: I think it's because it's easier. Well, actually, there's a guy we work with who is a spice merchant, Lior Sarkars, out in Manhattan. And I did ask him that question. And he said, you know, stop being a snob just use onion powder. <laughs> and, uh, of course, he. I think he sells it. So maybe that's the reason. I don't
4: think it gets the same. I mean, something happens to onions when you cook them. All the stuff that's bad, those sulfurous compounds that make you cry, if you cook it low and slow, they develop into something very deep and flavorful. And I don't think you get that no. with onion powder. I think
1: the rule is you can use them as long as they're high quality, but they're just different. I was traveling recently in West Africa and everybody uses, you know, the little Maggi cubes, the little bouillon cubes. I mean, that's like a central part of West African cooking, and a lot of places in the world. It's not the same as stock; it's just a seasoning. So, if you consider it as just another type of
4: seasoning, seasoning.
1: then you can use it. If you're going to replace onions in a dish, like in a stew, I would say no.
4: Yeah, I can't see it. I would use it in spice rubs. I wouldn't use it as the base of a soup or a stew.
1: I would add one thing: onions, no, but garlic. If garlic is minced and it has that strong flavor, which I don't like, maybe a really good garlic powder or salt actually might not be a bad substitute. Because you're not going to get that, you know, when you break down the cells in the garlic before you heat it, it has that really strong flavor, which I don't like. I think it's a bad aftertaste. So maybe garlic powder, a good one. Maybe not be a bad Best thing.
4: Substitute. I'm not sure how I stand there. I, I think we agree about onion. But I would say if you're going to go with the powders, certainly get good quality.
1: Well, let's ask Sarah. What would Julia have said?
4: Julia, of course, would have said go with a fresh onion and fresh garlic. Okay. Period. End <laughs> a sentence.
1: <laughs> okay. I think that's probably where Sarah stands. Yeah. Honor.
4: Yeah, this is correct.
6: Okay. And something like a chili, they
3: might actually stack, like, fresh onion and onion powder. Is there any reason that you
4: would do both?
1: Well, yeah, you might. It's a
4: different flavor profile. Well, your onion slightly. powder
1: is a different flavor profile. You might find you get okay. more of a deeper base flavor. Yeah. yeah that's actually worth testing. Yeah, yeah. It's a good idea.
4: Okay. Try it, All right. Allison, and let us know. Yeah. Okay. All okay. right. Thank you guys for the information. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling. Okay.
1: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Call us anytime with your questions at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling?
6: This is Caroline calling from Colchester, Vermont. um, And I have a question about onions. Okay. So I make a lot of Indian food. And uh, as you know, most Indian recipes start with an onion, ginger, and tomato base. Mm -hmm. And not uncommonly, I'll find recipes online that recommend that you puree the onion and then cook it. But I have found that without fail, this leads to kind of inedibly bitter onions uh, or paste. What's going on here?
4: Well, wait, 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 wait.
1: First of all, I have cook yeah. a lot of Indian food too. I haven't seen too many recipes that call for pureeing or grating the onions. By and large, they don't do that. I and mean, when you say puree, are you grating them or are you putting them in a food processor or a blender or what?
6: So, yeah, I found a few recipes online that recommend that you put them in a food processor.
1: I don't think that's a good idea at all, because I think it's sort of like garlic. (laughs) You're know, you exposing all the chemicals, which means you get a much stronger flavor, and that's probably why it's so bitter.
4: Yeah. I I, I don't know where that recipe comes from, but I
1: would throw that one out. That sounds like a really, if I may say, a dumb idea. I think Chris is right. And I don't think it's an I've looked at a lot of Indian cookbooks and cooked a lot of Indian food. I don't think I've ever seen a recipe that called an authentic Indian recipe that called for pureed Onion. The only time I've ever grated onion was for uh, like a tomato sauce. I'll grate a quarter cup, just a small amount. But I would not do that with a couple of onions. I think just chop them.
4: I agree. Okay. Because as, as soon as you yeah. chop them, whenever you um, chop an onion, you're it's releasing like these flavor right. compounds that are what make us cry. Those sulfurous, you know. You get fumes. the very strong. Yeah, flavor. and the more you. You know, mess it up. I mean, the, the crush rougher you it, get,
1: the more of that
4: bitter the, that bitter flavor. stuff's going right. to come so out. It's a yeah. really bad idea. I would chop it too. I agree.
6: Oh, we agree. Okay. Well, I will continue to finely chop as opposed to pureeing,
1: and you'll be much happier. And by the way, the strongest onions end up being the sweetest when you cook them.
6: Well, and
4: also contribute the most. Yeah. But you have to cook them slowly, not yeah. fast.
1: So, I mean, starting with a sweet onion doesn't give you a sweeter finished dish. No. Starting with a you know typical strong yellow onion will
4: will give you much more flavor, you too. get
1: more sweetness, so. Yeah. Caroline, thank you so much for calling.
4: Yes. Yeah, great. Thanks so okay, much. Take okay, take care.
1: Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to make your own vanilla sugar. You know, you can pay a great deal of money for vanilla sugar to add to your coffee or desserts, but actually, it's very easy and relatively cheap to do at home. Here's the recipe chop. Half a vanilla bean into small pieces, then combine with two tablespoons of sugar and a pinch of salt in a spice grinder. Blend until the vanilla bean disappears into the sugar. Then mix this into an additional half cup of sugar. And by the way, for a slightly more complex flavor, you can add a half teaspoon of cardamom seeds or half teaspoon of ground cinnamon to the mixture. Now it's time to chat with Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker and our in-house philosopher. Adam, how are
8: you? I am fine, Chris. How are you?
1: Well, I'm just wondering, uh, spring is upon us. Uh, and what are you going to spring on me this week?
8: Um, well, you know, spring is, is indeed upon us. And what is spring, at least in this household, but the dinner party season? I don't know if it works that way in your household, but it's when spring happens that we start to think, well, we should have a few friends over and uh, open a bottle or two and have a dinner party. But the thing I wanted to talk about with you is, have you noticed, as I have, that dinner and the dinner party are drifting farther and farther apart? And Let me explain what I mean. We decided to have um, some friends over. And since I'm the cook of the house, I had to start thinking about what I would make for this dinner party. And my mind immediately turned, as our minds will, to the old filing card cabinet of things you cook for dinner parties. So I thought, well, maybe I'll do a buffalo mode, you know, which is a French pot roast. Or maybe I'll do a lamb tagine. Or maybe I'll even do a filet of beef with Bernays sauce. And I realized as I was voicing all of these possibilities to my wife Martha, she made and my kids made that kind of little polite face you make (laughs) when something is not terribly appealing to you. And then she said accurately... But you don't cook that kind of food anymore. And I realized that I didn't, that usually what I cook for dinner is not a buffalo mode, it's certainly not a filet of beef with brene sauce. It's usually a teriyaki salmon stir fry. Or else it's uh, Brussels sprouts with ginger and um, bacon. Or else it's possibly um, quick-grilled tuna with uh, Vietnamese pepper sauce. The things that I cook for dinner tend to be last minute, what the Frenchies call a la minute, They're hot, they're done quickly, they're spicy, they're last-minute things. And I realized that the only successful social occasions we've had in the last couple of years where people connects people around to dinner, apart from the obvious big bird occasions, Thanksgiving and Christmas, have all been spontaneous. You bump into somebody outside the house and say, oh, come around, I'm just about to do dinner. And then you do one of the quick-hitting, tasty, spicy... high-energy, high high flavor dishes that we all by now favor. And yet we're not able to communicate that kind of cooking, at least not in this household, with the demand to have people over. And so, sadly, I confess that I am back to my buffalo mode (laughs) even as I recognize that I am seeing the uh, two tectonic plates of my own taste drift farther and farther apart.
1: Well, I guess the question is what is the social construct of a dinner party, right? Because Mm -hmm. what you said at the outset is is really, does the dinner party still exist as a dinner party or is it just dinner? And I would argue that the old format of the dinner party, which was multi-course, multi-wine, sitting around the table, the conversation evolves over the time, people change chairs. Maybe that is, you know, went the way of Downton Abbey, And now you have a social event, but it's not a dinner party.
8: I think that's exactly right. And that's exactly what I was reaching for, that the rituals and rites of the dinner party, as you and I at least grew up with them, have broken off now decisively from the rituals and rites of dinner. And as you say, this has happened in the past. We look now at the way food was served and the kind of food that was served at Downton Abbey or... As you know, one of my prized possessions is a menu from the banquet that was held in Eiffel's Honor when the Tour Eiffel, the Eiffel Tower, opened in Paris. And it's a dinner that is simultaneously unimaginable and indigestible. Uh, We no longer can look at it as anything except a beautiful relic. And I think in our lifetime, Chris... And this is the point I'm making. The same thing has happened to the dinner party of our parents. The dinner party that you and I probably both lay awake at night hearing the happy sounds coming from the table. Our parents, without fully knowing it, were trying to imitate the manners of the French restaurants um, that they aspired to. And that was the kind of dinner that they put on at a party. We no longer imitate those manners. And as a consequence, the ritual that went along with them, the dinner party is I think, dying away. And this may be, in fact, the last dinner party that we ever give, and that the natural tendency of our time, which is to have people over for dinner, a very different thing from having a dinner party, is the one that will triumph.
1: So we're going from formality to informality, and what's after that? Chaos?
8: No, on the other side of informality is probably a return to formality yes, on I'm our hoping. children's part. So
1: someday you and I will discuss the return of formality. and I, I oh, suspect yay, it so it'll be a happy day.
8: <laughs> Absolutely, when our kids come back and reintroduce formality, right. as I said last time we spoke, we're already seeing that in a small form in the form of the mixed drink. We yeah, both uh, discarded the mixed drink as being a relic of our grandparents' time, embarrassing for those of us who were true wine drinkers. and now the mixed drink is making its comeback. It's probably the leading indicator of the eventual return of the dinner party. But for now, we have nothing but dinner.
1: All hail the French 75.
8: Adam, thank you so much. Pleasure, Chris. That was Adam
1: Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. You know, early in the show, I spoke with Leila Schlack about the Settlement Cookbook, and I did have a final thought. The Settlement Cookbook, much like the Boston Cooking School Cookbook, was not just about recipes for food... It also offered recipes for a clean, orderly household. It's well known, however, that most late 19th century women wanted nothing more than to be emancipated from the drudgery of household management, and rightly so. But today, convenience has liberated us from the day-to-day chores of living. Food is really more about personal pleasure than family dinners. So today, we live in houses, not really households. As the Chinese say, be careful what you wish for. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to our website, 177 millstreetcom There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, and order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening.
6: For Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Tubab Pro. Additional music by George Brandel Edloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.